You know, one of the most remarkable things about Jesus, one of the many remarkable things about him, is that he was closer to God than anybody who ever lived. Jesus said, I and the Father are one. That's pretty close. And yet the people who are farthest from God flocked to Jesus the most. Those who agreed with Jesus the least wanted to be around Jesus the most. The ungodliest people on earth wanted to be around the godliest person that ever lived. And then when his church got born, the same thing happened. The writer of the book of Acts says this about this new little upstart church in Jerusalem, Acts 2. They were enjoying the favor of all the people, and the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. In other words, people around that little church said, you know, I don't believe what they believe. They got some really weird beliefs, but I'm so glad they're here. I like those people. I'm sure glad they're in our community. And then over time, what happened was, one by one, a dad, a mom, a child, maybe something, someone a little bit older, they started to discover that Jesus is real. And I can know him. He can be my friend. He can change my life. You see, the people in the early church lived to see that happen. They lived to point people to Jesus. And Jesus and the people just really gave everything to see that happen. They became this unstoppable force. Rome tried to squash that early church. They tried to put their heel on that early church. And they more, the more they oppressed it, the more it exploded. The more unstoppable that church became. Over the next five weeks, I want to talk to you about why that is. Why Rome could not squash the church of Jesus Christ, even though they tried so hard. And I think the reason why is because they did five things very, very well. Five things I'm going to share with you over the next five weeks. Five things that made that church literally an unstoppable force for God. Now here at Dream City, we call these things the five G's. You've all heard of the 3G network, the 4G network. Well, you're part of the 5G network. Amen. It's a network of grace. We're a, a community of grace. We're a community of growth. We're a community of groups. We're a community of gifts. We know our gifts and we use them for God's glory. And we're a community of giving or generosity. But today I want to talk to you about that first G. It's, it's the value of grace. And I'm going to put it on a poster for you. I never want you to forget this. This is why we exist as a church. We exist because everybody is welcome. Because nobody is perfect. And all people matter to God. That's why we exist as a church. Everybody is welcome. Nobody is perfect. And all people matter to God. Who matters to God? All people matter to God. How much? Well, it was worth the life of God's son, Jesus. That's how much people matter to God. Now, during Jesus' three-year ministry on earth, he had to work so hard to teach people this value, especially those who are inside the faith community, those who are involved in the church. Why is that? Well, there's this dynamic that runs so deep in human life. In fact, the discipline of sociology got built on this idea that human beings are tribal creatures. Say it with me, tribal creatures. This is not a bad thing. God made us this way. But then after the fall of mankind and sin entered the equation, we started dividing the human race up into groups. And there's a basic way that we tend to divide people up in our minds. There's us and there's them. There's us 
and there's them. This is part of our sin nature. We all tend to favor us over them. We think people in our group, the us group, have a lot of variety and openness, but them, they're all alike. They're in the them group. And what's more is we tend to get our sense of identity and self-esteem from our in-group. Now, there's been a lot of studies done about this. In fact, in one study, um, you know, they took boys and they placed them, them in one or two groups based on something as random as a coin flip. Just completely random. But very quickly, these boys decided that boys in their group had better personalities and were smarter than the boys in the other group. Now, some of you are here today and you're not boys at all. You're girls, you're women. And you're thinking right now, well, that's typical of boys because girls would never do something like that. Wrong answer, girls even worse. And I say that not based on any study. I say that because I'm a boy, amen. See how this works? Us versus them. We are tribal people. We've all said it. That's my tribe. They're in my tribe. It could be around politics. There's my side. There's your side, you know, the right side and the wrong side. It happens around age. People in our tribe, you know, like the same kind of music. We have the same kind of cultural memories, but they are different. They just don't get it. They're in the different group. It happens around technology. People of a certain age group are likely to have certain feelings about technology. And it's not just that, you know, I don't, I don't know how to Snapchat. It's I don't know how to Snapchat, and so I'm not like them. And technology becomes like a wall and not a bridge. My phone keeps getting smarter. I feel like I'm getting dumber all the time, you know? And people, gang, we do this us versus them around things like race. How much heartache and pain does that cause? We do it around gender, around sexuality, around wealth, around education. But there is one area that really breaks the heart of God when this happens. And that is spirituality, when it happens in churches, when it happens among God's people. See, God made us all in his image, but if we're not careful, what we do is we can remake God in our own image and say, well, what I like is what God likes. Who I like is who God likes. And then there's the other group over there where God has disdain for that group. No, with God, Everybody is welcome because nobody is perfect and all people, all people matter to God. How much do they matter to God? Enough for God to give his son, Jesus Christ, to die for this truth. You know, Jesus, he came to teach this message and he was going to teach it if it killed him. And it did kill him for teaching this message. If you study the life of Jesus, you'll read the stories about about this that reinforce this value that everybody is welcome because nobody is perfect and all people matter. And today I want to share with you one, one such story that clearly communicates God's heart for people who are outside the walls of this church. The story is found in Matthew chapter 9. Let me read it to you. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Now, hit the pause button. Jesus was a rabbi. And in that day, a rabbi and a tax collector are about as us versus them as you can get. Now, we know in our day, we love IRS agents. Amen. But it wasn't that day in, that way in Jesus' day. In Jesus' day, tax collectors were amoral social climbers. They got their position by offering a bid to the Roman government for how much money and taxes they could collect from a given region. 
Then they would take, uh, shake down the people of that region. They would cheat them. They would oppress them in order to enrich Caesar or Rome or even themselves. The Israelites hated these people. They were viewed as traitors. They were not allowed to testify in courts. They were listed with beasts and objects that would make you unclean. And a godly person, a God-fearing person would not address them, eat with them, touch them, even look at them. Now, if you're a Bible person, you may have noticed a little phrase in the New Testament that goes like this. Jesus ate with sinners and tax collectors. Have you heard this? My question is, you know, uh, why do tax collectors get their own category? If they're sinners, why not just call them sinners too? I'll tell you why. Because tax collectors were so despised that even the sinners would be offended if you put them in their group. That's pretty low. We do this all the time. We have a hierarchy of sin. Well, I might lie a little bit. I may not be honest, but I'm no axe murderer. Or, you know, I'm no, you know, drug dealer. You know, one of them. I'm not so bad. I'm not like them. At least there's somebody lower on the moral totem pole than I am. But in Jesus' culture, you don't get any lower. A tax collector was as low as you could possibly get. So here's Jesus. And he's walking through town. And by now he's recruited some disciples, Peter, James, and John, who, by the way, were fishermen. Now, fishermen weren't real high on the moral totem pole either. You've all heard those fishermen stories, right? Like the big one that got away. I mean, fishermen are not known as really being really honest people. Fishermen make golfers look, you know, courageous. You know, it's just amazing. So here's Jesus, and he sees this tax collector, and he stops. And I'm sure the disciples are waiting for Jesus to say what any good rabbi would say in the situation. Guys, this is the kind of corruption to which a life can sink apart from God. This is a bad person. Stay away from this guy. So imagine how stunned they were when their rabbi walks up to Matthew, this despised tax collector, looks him in the eye, puts his hand on his shoulder maybe, and says the two words that would change this tax collector's life forever. Follow me. Matthew, I want to have a relationship with you. Matthew, I want to do life with you. I know you've had a rough past. It's okay. Because in my world, Matthew, everybody's welcome. Because nobody's perfect. And all people matter to God. Matthew, I want you to be part of my team. I think you and I together doing kingdom work, we can shake some things up around here. We could really push the kingdom football down the football field. Would you follow me? Everybody is stunned. Friends, this is unheard of. This is scandalous. If you don't get the scandal of this story, you don't get the gospel. You truly don't get the gospel because this is one of the most scandalous things that's ever happened in the New Testament. And of course, Matthew is speechless. He doesn't often get invites from rabbis to join their leadership squad. You know? And so you know, Matthew is kind of like, man, this is amazing. Because Matthew's not one of uh, us. He's one of them. It, let me just translate this for you. This would be like me going out and finding a human sex trafficker and inviting him to be, be, be part of our elder board here at the church. This is just scandalous. It's socially upheaving, head-scratching, inexplicable, inexplicable grace. And friends, by the way, this is the only way any of us ever get to God. If we think that, that this isn't our story, then we are greatly deceived. This is the only way any of us are ever made right with God. You get this, right? This is our story. This is everyone's story. Now, if you think that little crowd was shocked by Jesus' invitation to this tax collector, 
They're even more stunned by what happens next. Because everybody watching is waiting for Matthew's reply now. Oh, this is going to be rich. Matthew decided a long time ago to join the Roman-loving, Israel-cheating, tax-collecting, make-myself-rich business. And nobody who goes into that business joins the rabbi-following business. He'll probably laugh in Jesus' face. Or maybe he'll audit Jesus. Well, instead, we're told in verse 9, Matthew just gets up and he follows Jesus. He just gets up and he leaves the tax collecting booth. He gets up and he walks away from everything in his past, his self-image, his identity, his pride. The, the text doesn't even tell us that Matthew said a word. He just gets away and walks away, gets up and walks away from his job as if to say, of course, yes, this is the opportunity I've been waiting for my whole life long. Friends, never say no for anybody. Ask the question. Invite people into God's kingdom. Don't miss this. It turns out that Matthew, the one person they all thought was the most unlikely God candidate in the world, was just one ask away from the kingdom of God. He was just one ask away from doing life with Jesus. But oh man, the story doesn't end there. The story gets way cooler. Fast forward now about two months. Here's Matthew, freshly redeemed by God. He's sitting one day in his house, in his lazy boy chair, just contemplating the goodness of God. He loves Jesus so much. He says to himself, you know, Jesus really took a risk on a mess like me. And I'm so grateful. And now he's enjoying the fellowship of other disciples. His faith is growing nicely. But it dawns on him, now wait a minute. I still have a lot of tax-collecting buddies out there who still don't know Jesus. And I, I got this, you know, I've I, I, I built relationships with these guys out there. I, I know if they could just meet Jesus, they'd love Jesus. I love Jesus, and I, I know Jesus loves them as much as he loves me. So I, I'm going to do something to introduce them to Jesus. And the light bulb goes on. I got an idea. What if I threw a party? I had this great house. I got money from my tax collecting days. I could go out and buy all the party supplies, the food, the drink, you know, all the supplies. And invite all my tax collecting buddies to my house. Then invite Jesus and the disciples to the house. They could rub shoulders together. Maybe some spiritual conversations would start. If I could just get my buddies to meet Jesus, I know they'd love him. Because Jesus just has a way with people. I got to find a way to get them to Jesus. And so he runs this idea past the other disciples. He goes, hey, Peter, James, and John, I got this great idea. And he drops the idea on them. And they're like, dude, bad idea. Bad, bad idea. We're already getting enough people for taking you into our little group. And now you're asking Jesus to go to a whole party with a bunch of guys just like you. This is tantamount to asking Jesus to go live in the Playboy Mansion. This is not going to work, right? But Matthew just cannot get this idea out of his mind. And finally, he screws up his courage enough to ask Jesus, Hey, Jesus, I, I know this sounds crazy, but I had this idea. And he drops the idea on Jesus. And Jesus just looks at Matthew and says, Oh, Matthew, I love you. I love where your heart is. I love your heart for people that I love so much. 
And I've been waiting for an idea just like this. Yes, I'd love to meet your friends. Yes, I'd love to party with your friends. Yes, count me in. I will be there. Well, now Matthew is just beaming. You know, he starts, you know, sending out evites and posts on Facebook, inviting all his sinner and tax-collecting friends to the party. And you have to understand, that day, you know, a ra- ra- uh, tax collectors would never, ever get invited to a party with a rabbi. And they've heard about this rabbi, the miracle worker, Jesus. And so there's some excitement in the air. They can't wait for the day of the party to arrive. Well, the day of the party arrives. And we're told in verse 10 that while Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. Boy, wouldn't you like to hear the conversations in that party? I mean, that must have been so interesting. I'm a pastor. I know what this is like a little bit. A couple months ago, I was greeting somebody out in the lobby. And they were an unchurched person, a guest of somebody. They were a, he's a Hispanic brother. And he says, Padre, you really do a hell of a job with those talks in there. You know, I'm like, thank you. <laughs> thank you very much. You know, I, you know, oh, sorry, Padre. Sorry, Padre. You know, but I can just imagine, you know, uh, all these conversations are taking place at Matthew's party. They're talking about how many people they've ripped off and, She's telling shady jokes and they're saying bad words and oops, sorry, Rabbi. And she's just like, just loving it. She's just loving them. Because Jesus sees people so much differently than the way you see people. And I see people. He looks to the heart. He sees people as either being members of the family of God or potential members of the family of God. And he's able to look past the muck and past the grime and see what they might become. What they might become. And I imagine the disciples saying, are you kidding me? What kind of a rabbi is this? Well, he's the kind of rabbi who says everybody is welcome because nobody's perfect. And all people matter to God. With Jesus, there is no groups. There is no us versus them. Now, this next part of the story may ding you a little bit and it dinged me a bit this week. But it's really important for churches to understand because there are some other people watching this party. You see, in that culture, banquets were open-air events. Back in those days, people were poor, and when a big party took place, it was like entertainment. And they would gather around and watch all the, the food and all the partying taking place. It was entertainment for them. And the Bible says that there is one group watching this party who consider themselves to be God's in-group. And they can't figure out what is going on. They can't figure out why Jesus, who claims to be God's son, is associating with all these, you know, social outcasts and all these sinners. And this is what it says in verse 11. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but I've come to call sinners. I want you to notice something. If you're following the story closely, Uh, The Pharisees asked the disciples this question. Why does your teacher hang out with tax collectors and sinners? They don't ask the rabbi, Jesus, the question. They ask the disciples. But Jesus overhears the conversation. And he he says, guys, disciples, I got this one, all right? You guys are still kind of Christianity 101. You might mess this up. Let me take this. I'll answer the question. Here's my answer. I do this. I came because... The reason why I came is not why you think I came. 
It's because God doesn't have a group. God doesn't have an us versus them group. My father wants everyone to be us. My father loves everyone more than you can possibly imagine. And his heart aches after every person who is still far from him. I didn't come to this earth for those in the religious group. I came for those who are seeking me out, who want to have a relationship with God. Because sometimes religious people's hearts are so hard, they can't receive God. They can't see it. I have come for those who have a soft heart, who really want me as their, as their leader, as their God. This is the message that Jesus teaches over and over again in Scripture. We see it time and time again. There's a similar conversation recorded in Luke chapter 15. Let me read it to you. It says, now the tax collectors and sinners, there's that phrase again. They were all gathering around to hear Jesus. See, understand, Jesus was like a magnet to sinners. They were drawn to him. They didn't believe what he believed, but they wanted to be around him. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law mutter, this man welcomes and eats with them. This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. So who is welcome in Jesus' house? Everybody. Because nobody's perfect. And all people matter to God. You see, when the Pharisees got together for a party, who do you think they invited? Other Pharisees. They went to church with the Pharisees. They studied with Pharisees. They, they met together week after week, month after month, year after year with other Pharisees. They never ever included outsiders into their group. In fact, they thought that God was pleased with this. They thought that God was pleased with us versus them mentality. And they thought that God was would, would applaud them for separating themselves from these sinners. When all along what it was doing them to them was shriveling up their hearts. It was actually driving them farther away from God. Gang, Jesus put the religious establishment on tilt. And he knew he did because he loved those people too. He loved the religious people and he wanted to reach them. He wanted them to discover what was really going on in their hearts and that their hearts were nothing like God's heart. Because God has a huge heart, an inclusive heart. There's never a human being who's ever sucked air into their lungs that didn't matter to God. That's God's heart. But that wasn't their hearts. So Jesus wants them to get it. So he decides to tell three stories back to back to back. He says, guys, here's what's really going on. It's kind of like a guy who has a hundred sheep. And one of those dumb sheep wanders off and gets lost. And so the shepherd leaves the 99, scours the hillside, finds the lost sheep, scoops him up and brings him back. And he is smiling. He's delighted because the one lost sheep has been found. Guys, it's like a it's like a widow who has 10 coins. It represents part of her, probably her entire net worth. One of those coins gets lost and so she calls her friends over. They turn the furniture upside down in the house trying to find the lost coin. And when they finally find the lost coin, they throw a big party and they celebrate because that which is lost is finally found. Or he said it's like a father who has two sons. And one son asked for his inheritance early before his father dies, which was a socially unacceptable thing to happen. And that crazy kid goes out and spends the entire inheritance on wine, women, and song. He doesn't sing all that much, you know what I mean? Then he finds himself friendless and penniless in a pig pen, 
eating slop with the pigs. And one day he comes to his senses and he starts back down that road, back to his home. And his father's on the roadside every day waiting for that son to come back home. And when he sees him, he doesn't, you know, say, now you got all these chores. You got to make up for lost time. He throws a, a robe on his back and a ring on his finger. He kills a fatted calf and they throw a big party because that which was lost is now found. Now you all understand that it's not that the, the other sheep or the other coins or the sun didn't matter. It's that when, when you've lost something that you really love, you don't quit looking for it because the other stuff is found. You keep searching. Parents, you all know what it's like to lose a child, right? I mean, you, you're somewhere, you're, you're in a mall at the state fair and the child gets lost. Uh, when, when my daughter was, Aubrey was six years old and Annalie was four years old, we were in Maui, Hawaii, and I took Aubrey and Annalie out snorkeling to a famous snorkeling spot, maybe a hundred yards off the beach. We're sitting there snorkeling together, and I have two personalities in our home. Aubrey, she's kind of the you know, the careful type, you know, the calculated type. And then there's Annalie, who is the, the risk taker, the bungee jumper, the skydiver, you know, should do anything. And so I got their hands, they're just little kids, and we're out there snorkeling, and the whole time Annalie's like, let go of my hand, man, I wanna, I wanna explore. So I finally let go of her hand, we're all just kind of looking down at the, at the, uh, the world below the, the, the surface of the sea. And all of a sudden, I turn around, got Aubrey's hand, and Annalie is gone. She just swam off on her own somewhere. And I freak out. I gotta find that kid. She is gone, lost. My, 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 first, my second daughter is gone. She's lost. Now, I could have gone back to the beach and told Angel, you know, honey, I got some good news and I got some bad news. <laughs> the bad news is we lost Annalie. She's lost at sea. But the good news is we still have Aubrey. So let's focus on the found one. Let's celebrate the found one. No, man, when you lose a kid, you don't stop until you find that kid. In fact, at that moment, Aubrey, she became a searcher with me. Let go of my hand. You swim that way. I'll swim that way. You're a searcher now. We're going to find this kid. I'm only six, Dad. I don't care. Swim on the ocean. Find that kid. She's a searcher. Because, gang, I want to tell you something. Please dial in here for a moment. There's only two teams with God. There are the searchers and there are the searchees. But the Pharisees thought there was actually a third team. They said, we're the spectators. We're the critics. We're the watchers. We're the consumers. It's not right to come here week after week and sit in a chair and think that everybody works so hard all week just for you. You're not a spectator. You're not a consumer. You are a part of the family of God. Would you help us build the, the body of Christ on this earth to this, to this church? We need you. God needs you. Jesus needs you. There are thousands of people outside the walls of this church, friends, who are still not connected to God. And there are some people, there are some people who love God so much that they're in search mode. And they're trying to help people get connected to God. And Matthew was such a man. He welcomes sinners into his home. Why? Because he couldn't not do that. You know why? Because he knew Jesus. He knew that everyone is welcome. Because nobody is perfect. And all people matter to God. Red and yellow, black and white, they are precious in his sight. Jesus loves the little children of this world. 
And I'll say it again. Jesus just looked at people differently than we do. He saw people as either members of his family or potential members of his family. And friends, I want to tell you, you have never locked eyes with a human being that doesn't matter to God. You have never locked eyes with a person for whom Jesus Christ did not die for. And that's why when Jesus, you know, he would welcome people into his presence that rabbis wouldn't. Roman soldiers and adulterous women, prostitutes, lepers, Gentiles, cheats, demon-possessed people. Even when he's dying on the cross, he uses his very last breath to welcome one more sinner into his kingdom. Friends, listen, you and I, we are the body of Christ. Now listen to me. We're the body of Christ. When Jesus walked on this planet, he had this inclusive attitude. He said, everyone's welcome. So what does that say about the body of Christ? His, the church is his body on this earth. You get that, right? So what should, what sign should hang over our door? Everybody's welcome. Because nobody's perfect. And all people matter to God. That's believers. That's unbelievers. That's skeptics. That's mockers. That's Republicans. That's Democrats. That's young people and old people. That's people in suits and people in jeans. That's people with wrinkled skin. That's people with tattooed skin. That's people with wrinkled tattooed skin. Ooh, I mean, you know. People of every color, people of every language, respectable people, shady people, addicted people, messed up people, straight people, gay people, transgender people, skeptical people, Buddhist, Muslim, Hindu, Jewish, humanist, I don't know what I am kind of people, married people, divorced people. Welcome to the Matthew party. Welcome to the Matthew party. Place where everybody is welcome because nobody's perfect. And all people matter to God. As somebody comes to help me wrap this up, Dream City, let me talk to you from the heart for a moment. This is our heritage. This is our church. This is how this church was built. We have an amazing heritage. We are not here on our own. God birthed this church back in 1923 by a pioneer named John Eating, who came to Phoenix to start this church, Phoenix First Assembly back then, when Phoenix had a population of 20,000 people. He launched this church to the Native American community. Talk about a pioneer, he was an amazing guy. And for 95 years, we have been standing on the shoulders of brothers and sisters who have gone before us with this pioneering spirit. They followed Jesus, they gave everything to see his church built. And we get to carry on this pioneering spirit. It's in us, it's part of our DNA. In fact, I think Hebrews 12, kind of represents what our church is all about very well. Let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus. Friends, let's keep our eyes on Jesus. Can you say amen to that? Let's love people like Jesus loved people. The pioneer and perfecter of our faith. Jesus was the first pioneer. And we are a church of pioneers. We're a church of pioneers. A church of pioneers is willing to do things differently than they've done in the past. Some of you are hearing this day and you're saying, this is not the church the way I've known it. Well, this is the way church, this is the way uh, Jesus wants church to be done. A church where everybody's welcome because nobody's perfect and all people matter to God. 
A church of pioneers is willing to take bold risks. That's why we say we believe one day Arizona is going to be known as a Christian state. Amen. We have painted ourselves in a corner. and said, God, you got to move to make this happen. We can't do it on our own. A church of pioneers is willing to sacrifice. A church of pioneers, catch this, is willing to give up on our own preferences and our own tastes and the way that we prefer church to be done sometimes for one reason. So that people who didn't know him yesterday can know him tomorrow. Friends, this is who we are. The church doesn't exist primarily for people inside the walls of it. The church exists for those who are outside the walls who have yet to know Jesus Christ. That's why we exist as a church. And if we forget that, it's over. Game over. That's why the church exists. As we've embraced this pioneering spirit, God has given us so much over the past five years. We, we have this beautiful campus in Phoenix, and we, we've done great things to reach out to our communities, given thousands of turkeys away at Thanksgiving over the years. We'll do it again this year. Huge Christmas productions that reach about fifty to 60,000 people every single year. Thank God for the people of the Phoenix campus. You guys are amazing people. We have a campus in Scottsdale. I just preached there at 9 o'clock. The place is full at the 9 o'clock service. Unbelievable what God is doing in Scottsdale led by Arian and Allison Wallwork and their great leadership team there. We have a campus in Glendale, led by Rose and Ryan McFadden. The church out there is growing just weekly. It's amazing what God is doing in the Glendale campus. Many of our folks who used to attend here now attend out there in Glendale because it's closer to their home. We have a campus in Omaha, Nebraska, led by John and Angel Weasel. You'll meet them in a few weeks. They've grown by 20% in just the past two months. A great revival taking place there. We have a campus in Colorado City, where God is, we're the only church in the whole city of 6,000 people. Just one Dream City Church and Dream Center uh, uh, location there. The only church in the whole city. And God's doing great things. Let me show you. That's the, that's the wrong, that's the wrong picture. That's the Dream Center. I'm talking about Colorado City. I'm sorry. There we go. Let me show you one more picture. A little boy last week heard about the church. He heard about what was taking place there. And he didn't have any shoes. He was so poor. He ran all the way to church. Watched this 11 o'clock service on video, gave his heart to Jesus Christ. Look at this next picture. He's got his Bible, and he's really excited. He's beaming because of what Christ has done. If, if that doesn't get you excited, then your wick is wet, man. That's what it's all about. Unconventional church. We have a great campus at our Dream Center. You can go back to that last picture now. Our Dream Center. You know, our, our, our Dream Center actually has a church on Sundays where hundreds of people show up. We have a children's ministry, a youth ministry down there. God is doing great things to the Dream Center. We have a streetlight campus now. The streetlight is our, our, our campus where we rescue young ladies from human sex trafficking, 11 to 13 years old. And that place is just beaming, and God's using it greatly for his glory. A couple weeks ago, a pastor from Safford, Arizona, called me and said, I'm going on the mission field. Back in 2007, we bought this amazing theater. It was brand new in 2007, four theaters, like an AMC theater. And we turned it into a church. And would you please come to Safford, Arizona? We'll give you this facility. It's appraised at $4 million. But we need, you know, a dream city church in Safford, Arizona. Friend, I'm telling you right now, God is doing something that's beyond us. It's amazing what God is doing. We have a wonderful staff here at this church. I wish you could meet them all. We have, you know, the, the folks in our tech department who make these services shine for us. I wish you could meet them. They're great people. Folks in our financial department who serve you in ways that you'll never know. 
those in our children's department, our youth department, our young adults department, our productions department, our special needs department, our discipleship and small department, our Dream City College is raising up the next generation of young leaders to go to these campuses and pastor them. Our prayer ministry through Pastor Saeed and Cynthia. I can go on and on. We have amazing outreaches through our Dream Center. 10,000 hot meals every single week through street lighting. Young ladies being rescued through our Thrive program. We're rescuing young families who are about to lose their, their kids to foster care because they don't have a bed in their home or a refrigerator. We show up with these supplies and keep families together through, through Thrive. Mom's pantry food distribution. JC super, Supercars. Uh, some guys in this church who get together and they take donated cars or fixed cars up and give them to single moms in this church family who need a little extra help. We have our dream conference that's reaching out globally and helping pastors. We have Christmas musicals and, you know, and summer musicals and turkey giveaways. We have so much. But friends, what we really need, what we really need is just a bunch of Matthews. Just a bunch of greedy, dishonest, self-centered, messed up people. And that's where all you come in. Amen. <laughs> Me too. People who have taken our messed upness to Jesus when we got healed and we got saved. But then we don't go from them to us. We realize there is no us in them. All there is is just Jesus and his friends and the people he wants to be his friends. And so we invite all of our sinful little friends to church and Jesus shows up. And guess what? A Matthew party takes place. People meet Jesus. People meet Jesus. So if you don't have any sinful little friends today, if you don't have any people like Matthew had on his guest list, on your guest list, I think it's time for you to do a little heart check today. And just simply say to God, God, who are the people I need to talk to? Maybe at a restaurant where I go or a gas station where I fill up or a neighborhood, someone in my neighborhood, maybe somebody in my family, maybe someone who works next to me in the cubicle at work next to me, maybe at my school. If I don't have any of those people in my life, then something is wrong with my heart. God, would you give me a new heart? Would you give me a Matthew heart? Can you imagine, friends? If all of us had a Matthew heart and we were inviting people to the Matthew party every week, we'd be unstoppable. There's nothing that could stop a church like that. Jesus is still in search mode for people outside of these walls who have yet to meet him. And Jesus is looking for someone who will join his search team. He's looking for another Matthew, another Matthew, another Matthew, another Matthew, someone he can use for his glory. So I'm asking this campus today, this is a new day. It's time for us to go a little bit higher. It's time for us to love God a little more. It's time for us to show our allegiance to the God that we say we love. I'm asking every one of you beginning today to ask yourself, why in the world are we here? What are we doing? Why do we exist? We exist because everybody is welcome and nobody is perfect. And all people matter to God, which means when somebody drives on this campus and they look lost, they may have a question, they look new, it means that we don't sit back in our seat and just let them go. We say, not on my watch. In my community, in this community, everybody matters because nobody's perfect and they matter to God. I'll answer your question. I'll serve you.
It means if you come here early and you're sitting next to somebody who looks all alone and you don't know their name or you don't know their story, it means you get up and walk over and ask them who they are and what their story is and get into their life because everybody's welcome and nobody's perfect and everybody matters to God. I guess what I'm asking all of you today is please just get out of the spectator booth when you gather here. Find a place to serve and help us build the body of Christ. Help us build Christ's body on this earth. We need you. God needs you. Jesus needs you. But more than that, as you go through your day, will you hang a big sign on your chest like Jesus did? That says, everybody's welcome. We find people in your little world who are sitting in a tax collecting booth and say, can I buy you a cup of coffee? What is your name? Let's build a relationship. Can I invite you to my church? Would you come with me? And sometimes those who are brand new, they're in transition, or maybe they have a need in their life. Just you asking them, will you come to church with me, is enough to get them to the Matthew party where they can meet Jesus in a great party will follow. So I'm asking you today, whatever campus you're at, will you start to serve? And will you help make this campus what it could be? The greatest campus on planet Earth. And will you pray to God today and say, God, I want to join the search team. Would you give me a heart like Matthew? He can do that, you know. There are some prayers that you're praying right now that God will not answer because they're not part of his will. There's one prayer he will answer every time. And that is a prayer, God, give me a heart like Matthew. He'll answer that prayer if you'll pray the prayer. I hope you will.